Good afternoon, members of parliament, special invitees, colleagues, members of the press. Welcome to this historic consultation on sexual orientation as a fundamental right in Guyana. I would like to introduce this afternoon's moderator, Ms. Audrey Matura from Belize. Um, she has a wealth of experience in journalism, print, TV, and radio. And she's also a former talk show host and a former member of parliament in her country, Belize. Ms. Matura recently complete, completed her LLB at the University of Guyana. Her special interest, her special area of legal interest is human rights with particular emphasis on women's rights and freedom of expression. I would also like to thank and apologize to Ms. Myrna Perkins, Perkins, Peter King, sorry, a member of parliament, for being here since one. Thank you for bearing with us. Your presence is greatly appreciated. Audrey Matura. Hi, good afternoon. I'm honored to be asked to do this role today. I believe that it is only in a developing and well-civilized country that we can come together and have discourse on every topic and to be able to respect each other's views. So I hope that we could proceed on that premise. And there's not much for me to say because our speakers have prepared everything for you all. We ask that you cleanly listen and afterwards we will ask the participation of the members of the public. You could vent your views and ask questions. Our first speaker is Mr. Kimo Benjamin. He is a UG law student, and he will be talking about the jurisprudential aspect of this issue. Please welcome him. Good afternoon, special invitees, members of parliament, colleagues, press. Um, I would just like to thank you all for being here. Um, you know, this is a chance for us to have a meaningful discussion in the area of sexual orientation and fundamental rights as it, result, as it relates to individuals in our society. And I must say, when I was asked to do this, I was a bit hesitant at first because you know how it is in Guyanese society, as soon as, you know, you look at a topic like this, you're labeled and, you know, there's the very sort of discrimination. I mean, the discrimination I feared was the very sort form of discrimination which um, we fight against in everyday society, but I thought, you know, people deal with that sort of discrimination every day. So it would be a bit selfish of me not to come here and say something on the topic. And what I aim to do kind of is like to show using le legal theories that although morality forms some, some basis of our law and our legal system, it is not, it doesn't make up, it's not a sole component of law, so to speak, and it should not be the sole guiding factor towards what decides or how our, our laws turn out. 
And I'll start with a quote from Thomas Jefferson in his, his inaugural address. And he said, All too will bear in mind this sacred principle that though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will to be rightful must be reasonable that the minority possess their equal rights, which equal law must protect and to violate would be oppression. Now, one of the questions on which legal scholars have been sharply divided concerns the question on how far should the law reflect morality or to what extent should the law seek to express common morality of all. And I'll start by looking at the expose of John Stuart Mill in his book on liberty. And what he said was that the sole end for which mankind are warranted individually or collectively in interfering with the liberty of action of any of their number is for self-protection. And he felt that the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of civilized society against his will is to prevent harm to others. This was John Sorsmill harm to other principles. What he was basically seeking is that the law should not seek, it's not the purpose or intent of the law, it should not be the purpose or intent of the law, to seek to enforce morality if that act or action of one person does not affect the rights or liberty of another person. And of course, this position was met with great disdain and contempt by some other legal scholars, which I will get into now. Um, the first, or I should not say the first, one of the leading critics of this proponent by, of this um, proposition by John Swordmill was um, the legal scholar Patrick Devlin. And he, he was well noted in the 20th century for his legal expositions and theories. And what he proposed was that there is such a thing as a public morality and this public morality forms a cement which basically holds society together and the law must regard as its primary focus and function to maintain this, pu this public morality which he saw as the factor which kept society together. And in his remarks about homosexuality, he asserts that, and I quote him directly on this, we should ask ourselves in the instance whether looking at it calmly and dispassionately, we regard it as a vice so abominable that its mere presence is an offense. If that is the general feeling of the society in which we live, I cannot see how society can, deny, can be denied the right to eradicate it. In other words, what he was saying is that 
the law should be made to favor the majority. Even if the laws did some sort of disservice to minorities in society, that totally ignored minorities' rights. And he also had support in another legal scholar, James Stephen. In James Stephen's book, he argued um, that there are such acts and vices which are so gross in nature as to warrant society's intervention and punishment. Now, listening to this sermon, I'm sure it's something we all agree with. There are such acts in public which, you know, they are so gross they want being punished. But these acts do not transfer into the area of sexual, um, like sexual orientation or sexual morality. To me, the, these acts, and not to me, I should say, other legal scholars felt that these acts were more in the term like murder or rape. These acts which actually violate somebody else's right. You know? Um, consent, I mean, I was hesitant to go there, but consenting or sexual intercourse between consenting adult males occurs behind clo occurring behind closed doors. It's hard to see a nexus to the to the whole theory that John Short Mill proposed that it it must do some harm to society and not and um, Professor Hart, H. L. A. Hart, he defined harm to be not just a psychological or not just psychological knowledge that this act is um, occurring behind closed doors. That is not enough to constitute harm. That's mere psychological damage or psychological knowledge. But harm is an act which in some way affects another person's rights. And there's no way that consensual sex between two adult males or females or sexual minorities, any other sexual minority, there's no way that that can be tied into violating someone else's rights. And, and the problem with morality in general is that there's no general consens consensus as to whose morality we should enforce. I mean, we live in a pluralistic society and there's bound to be a wide array of moral deviation. So therefore, there's kind of like Um, what would you say? There's kind of like an indecision on whose morality we should enforce in any given situation. And what HLA Hart said was that it is not tantamount to punishment, to punish men simply because others object to what they do. And the, the crucial question 
should not be whether or not homosexuality is immoral or not, or wrong or not, but whether it violates the rights of others. He also said that the important issue in lawmaking should be the securing of fundamental rights and the prevention of infringement of these individuals' rights. Hart argued that using law to enforce morality or using law to enforce moral values was unnecessary, undesirable, and morally unacceptable. Unnecessary because society was capable of containing many moral standpoints without disintegration. He was responding directly to um, Professor Devlin's cement theory that there was one, there should be one moral standard or one moral value in society, and that moral was what kept the society together. And what he was saying was that no, acknowledging that there's a different moral value out there, that one suddenly disintegrate the society. It takes a lot, a whole lot more than that to disintegrate a society. And he, he said it was undesirable because it freezes morality at one point. And we can look at such examples of wife beating and slavery. A few centuries ago, or just the other day, so to speak, these were considered moral in their time, but if we look at these acts today, they, they clearly are illegal if in, most, in most countries and are not tolerated in society. They're considered quite immoral. And the acts would be morally unacceptable because they infringed on the rights of others. What Hart also pointed out was that the standard of the right-minded individual is a tenuous one in that when people object to behavior they find unusual or unnatural as they term it, it's their response to that is not always based on rational thinking. These could be based on preconceived prejudices and many other factors, ignorance, misunderstanding, these all lead to people preconceiving notions about people based on their sexual orientation as such. And he gave three reasons why moral censor should not be adopted. The first of these was that the punishment or punishing offenders who, who are perceived to do some, some sexual act which society terms deviant, punishing these individuals requires doing harm to them while they themselves might not have done anything or any act which directly infringes on the rights of another individual. And 
Wahat was saying is that this should not be. This is not what the purpose of the law should be. And secondly, he said that the exercise of free choice by individuals is a moral value in itself with which it is wrong to interfere. And finally, he said, as far as sexual morality is concerned, the suppression of sexual impulses affect the development of the individual's emotional life, happiness, and personality, and thus may cause them more harm than the good the act or the legislation was seeking to eradicate it in, to do in the first place. And this can be shown to be true because a study of teenagers who, who were perceived or who acknowledged that, you know, they were of a, what shall I say, sexual minority or who were oriented differently sexually, acknowledged that gay, lesbian, or bisexual teenagers were three times more likely to commit suicide than straight or perceived or straight than their straight counterparts. And this was done by the Harvard University. Um, also joining in this debate as the law and morality was Ronald Dworkin. And what Dworkin did was he examined the positions of Devlin and Rostow and he sought, he sought to show that these positions, okay, you might have these strong feelings on the matter, but they're not always based on rational thinking. And what he said was that if the reasonable man believes, no, sorry, what what Devlin had said earlier was that if the reasonable man believes that a practice immoral no, is immoral, no matter whether the belief is wrong or right, as long as it is honest and dispassionate, then for the purpose of the law, it is immoral. But what Dworkin was pointing out was that even if it is true that most members of society think homosexuality is an abominable vice and cannot tolerate its existence. It is possible that this common opinion shared by society is a compound of prejudice and personal aversion and was not prompted by rational thinking. And what he also said was, it remains possible that the ordinary man could produce no logical reason for his views, according to him, for a general moral position to be valued, to be valid, they must exclude mere prejudices. For example, saying that, you know, oh, homosexuality is wrong because it's evil. I mean, there's no logical or concise thinking behind such a blanket statement. You know, it's coming from a prejudiced point of view. He also said it was for a general position to be valid, it must exclude 
emotional reasons. Oh, like saying homosexuality disgusts me. I'm disgusted by that. And reasons based on wrong facts, such as homosexuality causes AIDS, which we all know is far from the truth because the majority of um, HIV persons in society have sh are, 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 of, are heterosexual. And this has been proven time and time again by numerous studies. And the final one he looked at was parroting, like merely uttering a will. My mother thinks homosexuality is wrong, so therefore, you know, it's wrong. And according to Dworkin, he said that government must treat those whom it governs with concern, that is, as human beings who are capable of suffering and frustration and with respect, that is, as human beings who are capable of forming and acting on intellectual conceptions of how to live their lives. Government should treat people with equal concern and respect. In other words, the principle of equal concern and respect dictates that so long as a person's right does not interfere with the right of, an, of another in society, then society should not seek to deprive a person of that right. And what John Rawls also pointed out, this was another leading scholar in his time who looked at legal theories as it related to society. What John Rawls points out was that in a liberal democratic society, people are allowed to choose whatever lifestyle suits them best so long as their choices do not deprive other members of society of their rights. And as a result, he, he also thought that as a result of these plurality of views and moral standards, then institutions should be put in place to, res to respect the rights of everyone in society since he felt that everyone in society was on a level playing field. No one was supposed to have more rights um, as against another group. They should all be equal. And what Rawls wrote in his book, A Theory of Justice, was that each person possesses an inviolability founded on justice that even the welfare of society as a whole cannot, cannot override. And in using his social contract theory as a starting point, what he argued was that if justice was to be achieved in any pluralistic society, the lawmakers should strip, no not strip, but they should strip themselves of their identities. And they, when they enter this stage of lawmaking, they should be in a veil of ignorance and should block out or try to block out in their minds their preconceived prejudices or biases based on their own specific cultural, political, social and economic biases. And that was basically all I looked at in terms of the legal philosophy for us and how it related um, to 
rights of individuals, so to speak, and how morality came into this whole debate of um, rights for sexual minorities and perceived sexual orientation of people. Thank you. Thank you very much for that keynote. We will be having the questions afterwards, after all the presentations. And it is just right at this moment for me to acknowledge our parliamentarians here, Ms. Lurley Nestor, Mr. Vincent Alexander, and Ms. Myrna Puterkin, who stepped out for a while. And we also will be having today presentations from Apart from our two main presenters, we'll be having a presentation from Mr. Vidayak Kisun, Ms. Dinauta Radzik, and Moulan Mohammed Ali Zenjibari, who is the Assistant Director of the International Islamic College, and I've been asked to invite him to the head table. We welcome his presence. Can you please come forward? Thank you.